Thanks, Phil. So I, I think that introduction to the Ugandan context summarizes the angst that drove my research. And it was really within the context of our common frustration about the debates and perhaps the very narrow um, uh, framework that the debates were operating on, which was how is it that the ICC was going to affect peace in Uganda? Was the ICC going to lead to peace? Was the ICC going to derail possibilities for peace? And there was a lot of speculation happening on all sides of, of this conversation. And so my initial research was uh, motivated by that observation. But because I have, I have thought about this uh, for a while and I could say so many things, what I decided to do was to narrow it down to a written piece of work. And uh, that might uh, make Phil's work easier in terms of moderating me and making me keep quiet after a certain period of time so that I can, I can be sure to cover some of the, the, the most important um, elements within the allotted excuse me, the allotted uh, 15 to, to 20 minute uh, time frame. And I think what you will realize uh, is that some of the debates that uh, animated the Ugandan uh, case are very much present currently in the Sudan situation with regard to the referral of, of um, various, uh, the, 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 uh, the issuing of various arrest warrants in the Sudanese case and the conversations about peace, justice, what can the ICC do and what can it not do, what, what can explain various peace processes really, um, those debates are still alive. And so that is the context um, of my work. And also just to add that quite a, a bit of the paper is, uh, the, the presentation of the paper is quite preliminary, so if you have any reflections, thought, um, thoughts, additions uh, that you think I should uh, think about uh, at the end of it, I'd love to, uh, to hear what uh, uh, what you'd have to say, because I, I, I very much would appreciate uh, feedback. And, um, and then, as Phil also mentioned, it's very much based on interviews with um, the, the, the elite, elite um, stakeholders in the conflict as a way of trying to go beyond the discourse that was taking place at the level of international organizations and, and the media. So, so the question that I'm really trying to answer is, how did the ICC affect the Cuba peace process? If at all, and I will do so in three steps. The first step will be a very quick zoom through the history of Uganda, and there I will talk about the conflict, the involvement of the ICC, and the subsequent peace process. The second step will be to give two common explanations that are given for the Juba peace process, and one of those explanations privileges shifts in military and political considerations on the ground, and the second explanation um, privileges explanations, um, privileges arguments about um, principles, norms, and international institutions. And then the third section of the paper will uh, propose that a fuller explanation might be acquired through adding a crucial but often overlooked element of elite agency. And what my evidence seems to point to is a conclusion that Juba, the peace, pro the peace process, was one of the byproducts of elite agents appropriating the International Criminal Court in pursuit of a range of non-justice political goals. So that gives you a quick overview of what it is that I'm going to tell you. So, section one, the historical overview. 
Within the context of a turbulent post-independence history in Uganda, the conflict between the government of Uganda and the Lord's Resistance Army was triggered in 1986 by the NRA. NRA is the National Resistance Army of the current President Museveni, when the NRA overthrew the then government of the Uganda National Liberation Army. And that government that was overthrown was composed mostly of soldiers from northern Uganda. Museveni's army subsequently occupied northern Uganda, this area at Choliland, where the former, the overthrown army came from, in order to confront the supposed popular base for the UNLA, and in the process, repressed and perpetrated widespread atrocities against the population. Resentment to the occupation led to a series of rebellion, most notably the Holy Spirit movement of Alice Laquena. And while her rebellion was eventually defeated, Connie and what eventually came to be called the Lord's Resistance Army, the LRA, had taken the mantle of spiritual discourse of cleansing through violence. And that is really what the LRA have been popularly known for. So the war then resulted in a high exposure of brutality for most of the population in northern Uganda. Perhaps as many as 66,000 children were abducted. Now those numbers vary depending on who you're talking to and what their agenda might be, but the, 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 the bottom line is that a lot of abductions um, took place. And in the media, Connie and the LRA were portrayed by the government uh, of Uganda as a ragtag army that was perpetually on the verge of being defeated uh, by the Ugandan army, which is also called the UPDF. Um, so if I throw out that acronym, uh, hopefully I will not confuse you too much. And uh, this, uh, this, this ragtag army was also thought of as a pointlessly violent group without a discernible political goal. Now, a range of scholars have then gone on to point out what might be considered to be political goals of the LRA, but the common narrative nonetheless is one that very much privileges that apolitical understanding of the Lord's Resistance Army. And at the same time, the common narrative also marginalizes the other aspects of abuses, which include how it is that the UPDF, that is the Ugandan Army, were also complicit in a range of human rights abuses in northern Uganda most notably the internment of 80 to 90 percent of the actual population um, in internally displaced people's camps. So the ICC became effective in July 2002, and by 16th of December 2003, the government of Uganda had asked the ICC to intervene to address the war crimes committed by the LRA and effectively became the first, the first state referral to the International Criminal Court. What this did was to spark a controversy on the wisdom of seeking legal solutions to political problems. With varying levels of nuance and agreement on alternatives, the basic debate questioned whether the ICC should proceed with a prosecution because it was appropriate or because it would lead to the desired consequences. So why should we allow the ICC to intervene? And what are the kinds of consequences that such an intervention might, um, might occasion? But the unexpected seemed to happen because in May of 2006, a secret process mediated by the government of southern Sudan took a public turn with the appearance of, uh, appearance of images of Connie in the media for the first time. And this was in a, in a, in a widely watched BBC interview. Um, uh, and in this particular interview, Connie was calling for peace. And he was talking about the way in which he does not target civilians. He only targets people who are uh, affiliated with, with Museveni's, uh, Museveni's 
Sudanese uh, army, or Museveni's force. The Juba peace process began, mediated by the government of Southern Sudan, Vice President Riek Mashar. A series of agreements were signed over a two-year period, including an agenda item three that detailed the process by which the ICC would be marginalized and accountability pursued in Uganda through both formal and informal processes without the ICC. By March of 2008, there was a signed accord on just about everything that the LRA had sought to get agreement on. What remained was the signing of a symbolic final peace agreement. On April 10th of 2008, and, and in March 2008, this is when Phil and I were having these workshops in Uganda, and they were, they were absolutely fascinating, and we can discuss those in the, in the question and answer session. But by April 10th of 2008, that was the first time that Kony was expected to show up in order to sign this final peace agreement. He did not show up, um, citing fear of arrest. And soon it was evident that he would not sign at all unless the ICC arrest warrants were suspended. The peace process was considered as terminated by the 14th of December 2008 when the Ugandan army launched Operation Lightning Thunder against the uh, Lord's Resistance Army in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So, given that background, how can we explain the Juba peace process? Now here I go to the two explanations that I mentioned um, earlier. The first common explanation of Juba rests on shifts in the political and military framework, and it asserts that the ICC had little independent impact on the peace process outside the shifts in uh, political and, and uh, military considerations. The explanations in this camp begin with the understanding that Juba was the 10th peace process in Uganda since 1994, depending on how you count. But uh, most, uh, most common counts begin with the Bigombe 1 process of 1994-1995 and proceed through a whole range of interventions that are attempted by both civil society, the church, and various establishments, including international organizations, until the Bigombe 2 process, which was still ongoing by the time the arrest warrants for the Lord's Resistance Army were being issued by the ICC. Um, so th given that there were all these peace processes that were ongoing, people in this camp of explanations would argue that the ICC was not a, a, an important factor. In fact, according to the, uh, the LRA legal advisor, uh, he mentions that the ICC would have made these people, meaning the LRA high command, even more obstinate because they would not have known that there was any way to get around the ICC. So that view that the ICC would have marginalized the possibilities of negotiation. Instead, what they do is offer two explanations for Juba. The first explanation they offer is on domestic military balance. According to the UPDF spokesperson, initially the LRA had advantage over the UPDF, and this is what he said, I quote, they were operating in a terrain more familiar to them than us, and the rebels were much younger than many of our troops, he said. And in another interview, the secretary um, to the president uh, attributed the military's new advantage to what he called the president's stubbornness. And I quote, President Museveni had been, um, has been stubborn when the West and everybody was calling on a cut 
crackdown in defense spending, he was insisting that the army had to be better equipped and that once the army was better equipped, we were going to have different results. What happened was that Museveni did not respond to the calls that he keep military spending below 1.9%, actually below 2%, i.e. 1.9%, and instead, by 2002-2003, military spending was up to 21%, according to some um, accounts. It is this shift in the military capacity of the government of Uganda that this group of explanations would give credit um, for putting uh, the, the peace process underway. So the LRA was militarily defeated, and so it made sense that they would negotiate. Excuse me, that they would negotiate. The second strand of arguments against still privileging the, the, the military political explanations focus on geopolitics. And as we know, the Ugandan army was involved in a long proxy war with Sudan, Uganda supporting the Sudanese People Liberation Army, the SPLA, and in retaliation, Sudan supporting the LRA. Now, the, 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 the question as to who supported whose rebels first is one that is, is contentious, but the ultimate outcome is that there was a proxy war between Uganda and Sudan. In 2005, the Khartoum government signed a comprehensive peace agreement with the SPLA, an event that was seen from the military perspective of Uganda as success in the Ugandan military strategy of supporting the SPLA in southern Sudan, and then the LRA, which had then been used by Khartoum to attack the SPLA, became, in theory, defunct in the face of that negotiated agreement between the North and the South. Further, the LRA's location in southern Sudan, in light of this comprehensive peace agreement, their location was no longer safe because it was now under the control over their former enemies. In this view, the meeting between Salva Kiir and Joseph Kony at the beginning of the Juba process, where Kony was given by Kiir three choices, which is negotiate, leave Sudan, or be militarily pursued, stemmed from this security consideration in the subregion. This was summarized by a quote that I obtained from a member of the cessation of hostilities monitoring team who was looking at, uh, who was monitoring the, 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 the Juba peace process. And he said, the balance of forces had changed. The LRA had no chance. When Machar approached them to stop or come to the negotiating table, they had no alternative. And so in this explanation, the context was absolutely instrumental to the Juba peace process. And the third explanation, and I won't give it too much, uh, uh, too much airtime, is focused on donor pressure. And this starts from the October 2004 visit uh, by the then head of the UN OCHA, the um, Office of the... Uh, yes, OCHA, the UN OCHA, Coordination of Humanitarian um, uh, Affairs, uh, Jan Egeland. And then he said that Uganda was the world's... Um, uh, the world's biggest neglected crisis, and that suddenly put the issue of Uganda on, on, on very many donors' um, uh, uh, radar screens. And since Museveni was very keen to remedy his view or his, uh, his role as, uh, as a donor darling, it was important for him to correct that, that image, and therefore he, 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 he put in place a process for peace negotiation. So in summary, the interaction between the UPDF military strength, the reduced Sudanese support for the LRA, and the interna international pressure all served to dislodge the LRA from southern Sudan and push them into the DRC and facilitate the peace process. Shortcomings of these explanations, there are quite a few. For instance, we cannot understand from this explanation why it is 
of the LRA are very explicitly afraid of the ICC, nor can we understand the content of the peace talks, because the peace talks spend an overwhelming amount of time uh, concerned with issues of peace and justice and accountability, how to respond to these particular normative concerns that happen to be part of the spirit of the times. And so, obviously, we can't understand why the LRA refuse to sign the final peace agreement uh, citing the ICC, unless we actually say the ICC is important, in which case we would have to move to a different set of explanations. So then the second explanations of Juba are those that uh, look at the ICC in terms, of the, in terms of what I mentioned earlier, international ideas, norms, and institutions. One mechanism through which the court is expected to influence state behavior is described by some scholars in international relations as normative socialization. And this is a process by which states arrive at, uh, I quote, collective understanding about appropriate behavior, which in turn leads to a change in identity, interests, and behavior. Well, identity and interests, but behavior uh, being informed by the international norms. The road to socialization includes a variety of strategies that work in what a number of scholars have called a spiral model, including domestic pressure, moralization, argumentation, persuasion, and institutionalization. To what extent, then, was normative socialization instrumental in explaining what happened in Juba? For the ICC's role in Juba, socialization is seen to work through, port, through both persuasion and coercion. Explanations based on persuasion credit what they call soft power, that term by Nye, but soft power of the ICC. According to Nye, soft power operates through persuasion, uh, persuading and attracting others into shaping their preferences rather than through coercion. The idea of soft power has gained currency beyond the sphere of influence of the state and has been used to describe strategies by people and leaders and institutions and so on. Burke White also cites a similar explanation when he talks about the ICC as having the capacity to reshape the culture of the target state and even the identities of criminal perpetrators through norm internalization. There is some evidence for normative socialization. First, the LRA appeared to understand the implications of international justice and acknowledge the parameters of acceptable behavior with regard to war. For instance, the BBC interview that I cited earlier where Connie appeared for the first time in over two decades in, 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 in public view, Connie rejected the suggestion that he had targeted actually civilians. The LRA negotiators, on their part, when they had public consultations, and there was one I attended in December of 2007, um, one of the, uh, they started the, the, the public consultation with an apology, and I'll read you what uh, one, one gentleman called James Obita, who was uh, one of the lead negotiators, said. He said, the LRA and the high command are sorry for what happened in this country, and they ask for forgiveness. Equally, the LRA also has forgiven all those collaborators who were working with the government. They have forgiven everybody. So I stand here to say, let us make this a new beginning. We have a responsibility to those people of the North and Northeast Uganda. So there is an extent to which they seem to be bowing to international pressure and particularly the concern for victims, which is very much part and parcel of the, of the, of the norms that are propounded by the ICC. 
Through the signing of the accountability uh, agreements that I've described earlier, the LRA proposed to put themselves under domestic justice, giving every appearance of responding to the international pressure against impunity. And this was very well captured by one of the LRA negotiators when he said, nobody believed that the LRA would accept to even agree, <laughs> accept to agree, that's his quote, um, that they committed crimes in Uganda. But they have been able to say so. They have, oh no, um, okay, oh no, okay. So there is, a, there is, a, there is those are the, uh, the explanations based on persuasion. But there is a range of explanations that give the ICC credit, and they're based on, on coercion. And this, for example, is what um, Akavan calls the looming presence of the ICC, which is supposed to be, uh, to, to give, the looming presence of the ICC will motivate actors to behave in particular ways because they're afraid of what the ICC might do, i.e. arrest them. And so the argument there is that the ICC factored the LRA into their considerations, rational factoring of the ICC into their considerations, and the cost-benefit analysis weighed on the, in, the, in, in, in favor of a negotiated um, settlement. Now, um, and obviously during the actual peace process, the influence of the ICC is very strong because the content, as I have mentioned earlier, is very much a content of justice and accountability and the discourse of victims is very strong. Now, why is this explanation insufficient? Because, again, it, uh, the, 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 the way in which we think about socialization in theory is that it has to... There is a very strong element of demand from below. The population are demanding justice, and they are linking with international norm entrepreneurs of various natures who then collectively put pressure on the state. In the case of Uganda, you do not have that. What you have is a demand of the ICC's intervention from the executive. It is the president who actually refers the case of Uganda to the International Criminal Court. So we cannot uncritically say that the case of Uganda was a case of normative socialization. Again, neither can we uh, understand in complete compliance. What happens when the government of Museveni says, oh, we are willing to work with the ICC, but then decides, if Connie behaves himself, we will, if Connie behaves himself, we will waive the ICC, as though the ICC was really not an issue that, uh, that, uh, that was of fundamental importance. So the complete in compliance is something else that the, the existing theories cannot help us understand. And what I argue is that we need to, uh, sorry, one more thing under incomplete um, uh, compliance is that we need to remember that in the beginning of, of the peace process, the, the Ugandan army killed one of the wanted men called Raskarokuya, and then it also allowed to pass through the territory that they were controlling another LRA commander called Dominic Ongwem. In other words, they, they, had, they did not see the, 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 the need to comply with the ICC as important as the domestic process that they had started of the peace process. So one can ask to what extent was the ICC really the driving force um, in the observations that we see. Now, the third section, which I'm unable to get into in great detail, but which is, is, is perhaps the most interesting, but I, I'll get into it. I'll get into it during the question and answer. I'll just really quickly summarize it. What this section is going to be doing is understand, seek to understand the, the role of the ICC in Juba from the perspective of elite agents. And this, uh, my explanation starts from the premise that state elites State elites act and make choices on how to use tools available to them in their pursuit of a variety of political goals. 
in a process similar to what um, Goodman and Jinx have called acculturation or Subotish in her work in former Yugoslavia has called norm hijacking, what we find is that evidence in Uganda points to the idea of an appropriated ICC where the norm of justice was in circulation but for ends other than those for which the norm founders and promoters intended. In particular, what I was going to argue in this section is that in the first instance, the ICC was instrumentalized in order to politicize the conflict in the north and essentially to externalize the costs, political costs of the, the war with the Sudan. However, the unexpected proposal for peace talks by the government of southern Sudan brought the politics back into the process of, of the government of Uganda's consideration. And at this point, the ICC was appropriated for the second time to serve as a stick to push forward the peace process. And at this point, the interests that were driving the Ugandan government were that one, it needed to get some brownie points with the, with the population in the north. Number two, the ICC was becoming slightly dangerous because everybody was making noise about the Ugandan army being investigated. And number three, it actually seemed that the LRA were afraid of the ICC and therefore they could, they, that, that, the, this combination of factors could be used to push forward a beneficial peace settlement. And so the Juba peace process was therefore a byproduct of this exercise in the elite appropriation of international norms. 